gays are now an extremist group in Russia. Fucked up. Right. Kind of labeled a terrorist organization. I'm like, don't you have to maybe, I don't know, blow something up or kill someone or something to be considered a terrorist group? Hot take. Not a fan of Vladimir Putin. (laughs) I don't want to actually say that or have that come out because I don't want polonium tea coming for Christmas. Oh, you might be concerned about someone we might have pissed off by the end of this. Welcome to this episode of Kick-Ass Queers. I'm Larry Womack. And I'm Rachel Stewart. This is um this is our Return of the King. Oh, okay. I was going to go for the, the Return of the Jedi, but sure, no, let's no, go no. for Lord of the Rings. This is four hours long, so it's going to be <laughs> Return of the King. In the first episode, we discussed the atmosphere of pervasive homophobia in 80s and 90s America, including really important events that led up to this case in the county in which it occurred. In the second episode, we met the cast of characters involved in the arrest and its immediate aftermath. We spoke with key figure Lane Lewis, who we'll also be talking to in this episode. So if you haven't listened to those previous two episodes, we really recommend that you go back and give them a listen. If you haven't, you might not be able to keep these characters straight. But not heterosexually straight. Okay. Now that we know you've listened to parts one and two, or at least part two, and know that you maybe just need a refresher, our story so far is four sheriff's deputies led by one particularly nasty cop burst into John Lawrence's apartment due to a false report of a gunman. According to two of the officers, they found Lawrence, a white man aged 55, engaged in some sort of sex act with Tyrone Garner, a black man aged 31. They arrested Lawrence and Garner for homosexual acts, which were illegal in the state of Texas at the time. Meanwhile, down the road, <laughs> Lane Lewis, a gay activist with an impressive resume, has finished his big LGBT activism gigs in New York and moved back to Houston, where he has been quietly working as a bartender. It's got a real Clark Kent vibe to it. So these two guys have been arrested for having gay sex, and the next morning, September 18th, 1998, they're taken from their cells and brought in for their first arraignment. This happens in a big courtroom where all of these defendants are called up to the front, one after another, having their charges read publicly and entering a plea. Most of them, including Lawrence and Garner, do not have an attorney. Most are pleading guilty or no contest and paying a fine so they can go home. And they get to Lawrence and Garner, and they read the charge, which they were unaware of up till this point, out loud. Homosexual acts, which, fun fact, is even today still on the books as a Class C misdemeanor in the state of Texas in Title V, Chapter 21 of their Penal Code, right under Continuous Sexual Abuse of a Child, and right above public lewdness. So, Texas. So th- this is what on. we would call a trigger law for those of you who follow something like Roe versus Wade. Mm-hmm. These are things that the states cannot enact because it's a federally protected issue now. However, if it were to be overturned, for example, how Roe versus Wade was overturned, then it would be put back into to effect. They can start to enforce it again. And this is going to be a concern that we address later as well. So when their charge is read, the courtroom is kind of stunned. 
John Lawrence told author Dale Carpenter that there was an audible gasp. The DA then proceeded to read Joseph Quinn's affidavit, stating that he saw the two men engaged in anal intercourse. Now, remember from our previous episode, we have every reason to believe that Quinn has made this up. He didn't like their attitude when they burst into the apartment. He didn't like seeing gay porn in the house, which I think I neglected to mention in the last episode. No, you so. did. T- you, we we, we did talk about James Dean. Well, the James yeah. Dean fan art yeah. you mentioned. Yeah. Whatever his reason, he arrested them for homosexual conduct and said he had seen them having sex. So the hearing officer asks how they plead, and they say not guilty because, well, they probably weren't guilty, and they were pretty stunned to hear <laughs> that they had been spotted having sex the night before. Because again, these were men who have said privately and said after that not only were they not having sex that night, they had never had sex and would never have sex in the entirety of their lives. That's a harsh That's a harsh way to let somebody so, know there's no chance. It I is, was literally. Right? I've already been prosecuted for this, and I'm still not going to do it. Yeah, it's like double jeopardy can't get you. And you're still like, I will never tap that. Aww. So because they have pleaded not guilty... They go back to their cells, where they are kept until after midnight that night, then sent home while their case heads over to a justice of the peace. In the meantime, they're left to explain to their families and to John Lawrence's partner that they were arrested for having gay sex, which again, they probably weren't having. And Lawrence's partner seems to have accepted that on its face, which... I mean, we kind of know the cops involved. We've seen the evidence. I'm pretty close to 100% convinced that they weren't. But if my partner was arrested for having sex with someone else and I didn't know all that, I might be skeptical. Yeah, I think that, you know, I would I would absolutely, you know, believe my partner for that. I I think there would have been maybe some behind the scenes conversations. But I think that if if Kara came to me and be like, it's a setup, I, you know, I think I would believe her. Keep that in mind in the future. <laughs> Next time Kara and I are alone together. Oh, oh yeah, okay. <laughs> she'll believe it. She'll believe it. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> what a picture. Anyway, their next stop is a justice of the peace. And that justice of the peace was Mike Parrott, who came up in our previous episode. Remember, he's the one who told the story about the soccer coach. Two clerks in his court were Nathan Broussard and Cheryl Rapolo, who also was mentioned in our previous episode. And what did Cheryl say when she saw the case? You better take this to Lane Lewis. Exactly. So, we're all caught up. And now, the conclusion. Because Broussard frequented the gay bar that Lewis worked at, he knew just where to find him. Broussard was deeply closeted at work, but he did have a partner as we mentioned in the last episode, a deputy sheriff named Mark Walker. Walker had, ironically, at one point, been assigned to be Quinn's supervisor God. to try to keep an eye on Jesus him. Jesus Christ. Can you imagine? And I don't have proof of this, but people that I've talked to near the case have said that maybe Quinn was related to a higher up in, I don't know if it was the department or the government or something like that, so he was somewhat protected. And just sort of managed, but I, I wouldn't I don't be know if surprised. Actually, actually, I was thinking about that that this that exact thing this week, where just the sheer amount of stuff that he does, I, I I couldn't help but think he has to be attached to somebody that's giving him because I mean even even for sort of a broken and corrupt system, he's beyond the pale. 
I mean, when you have to come up with the Quinn protocol, you know, it's there's something there. So Broussard calls Walker and he's like, you are not going to believe what Quinn just did. And Walker was like, no way. I got to see this. Backs me over a copy of the charges. So Dale Carpenter in his book reports that the two just sort of happened to bring this up to Lane Lewis while he was working at the bar and they were there later. Lane told us that Cheryl had mentioned Lane, which is kind of a different story. But either way, whatever happened, this is what transpired. From our interview with Lane Lewis. Lane, it's great to have you back. I'm at Pacific Street Nightclub, and it is a Friday evening. And Pacific Street opened for some reason that to this day escapes me mentally at six o'clock on Fridays and Sundays. That meant we all had to be there at five o'clock because we had to set up bar at 5.30. Mark comes in early. We knew Mark, we knew Nathan, good guys, hung out a lot at the club. So it was not unusual for them to let him come in while we were setting up. Mark comes over and says, uh, Lane, I, Nathan asked me to come in early and tell you about something. A couple of guys have been arrested for homosexual conduct. Are you sure? Yeah. Why did they really get arrested? Now, let me put this in context. For about 10 years, I had two roles with the Houston Police Department. Way back when I was at Intercare, if you'll recall, there was a lot, and when I say a lot, I mean a lot, of hate crimes in Montrose. At one time, I think we were probably the hate crime capital of the country. I mean, we had two or three beatings a week during this time period. It was horrible. There's a long strip of road in Houston called Westheimer Road, and kids would come from all over the suburbs. These kids would get drunk, and they created a game out of hunting queers, literally hunting queers. They would circle around the bars, Montrose. They would walk up and they'd say, hey, you with the black hat, do you know where JR's is? Very popular gay club. Do you know where JR's is? And if you said yes, whack to the back of the head. They would pile out of these cars and just beat on you. We had been complaining to the Houston Police Department for some time. They didn't think it was an issue. They didn't think we were being targeted because of our sexual orientation until a young man named Paul Broussard was murdered, walking from the club to his car with a group of friends, and he ends up getting stabbed and killed. Suddenly the police were much more attentive <laughs> to our complaints. No. See any, is Nathan's last name Broussard or did I get it that It is, wrong? but there is no relation. But they're no, not related, okay. No relation. So the police department decide that they're gonna do a sting operation. They're going to go out and pretend to be gay men and see what happens. They go out, they do their seven, eight hour shift, and they decide, see, nothing's going on. Right about the time they're going to close up for the evening, somebody walks up and says, hey, do you know where the such and such bar is? And before the cop can answer, he's getting beat up. Before the guys in the white van can pour out and come help, he's getting the shit beat out of him. 60 Minutes and Ed Bradley did a great piece on all of this. So the police department says, okay, there's something going on here. We're going to ramp up security and, and patrols, but we also feel it's important to have some gay and lesbian sensitivity training done with the new cadets. So as we're putting them on the street, 
they have better training in order to interact with your community and protect them. Okay. So HPD puts out requests for proposals. And so me, Anise Parker, Bill Scott would go out every time there was a cadet class and there was usually two or three, four classes a year. And we would go out and we would teach this class on gay sensitivity and trans sensitivity to help them do their job better. Second thing, I was the mayor's coordinator for the citizens review committee. And what that means is if you're a cop and someone files an internal affairs complaint against you, internal affairs does an inve uh, investigation. They create a report. They put it in the officer's file. That file that would then be sent to one of three citizen review committees. That citizen review committee usually had one or two officers and four or five civilians. We would review it. We would make a recommendation as to what we thought should or should not happen. Then the chair of each of those three committees would then go and sit with the administrative staff and they would make a recommendation to the police chief as to what should happen, if anything. So I'm saying all this because I read a lot of reports of, hey, I was arrested because of this or that or homosexual conduct or whatever. And in almost every case, it was not exactly how the complainant <laughs> described the arrest. Okay. So when Mark was explaining all this to me at Pacific Street at 530 on a Friday, my skepticism was high because I was very accustomed to dealing with the police department and how arrests were made. You with me? Yeah. And I assume that arrests under that statute were pretty uncommon, right? Glaringly uncommon yeah. because Lawrence v. Texas was not meant to be a penal or criminal law, right? It was meant to be a discriminatory law. That's what it was meant for. I had been keenly aware of how that law was used against people because of my experience with AIDS Equity League and my experience with the police department. So I was keenly aware of how 2106 was not meant to arrest you because of criminal behavior. It was meant to discriminate against you in social services. It was meant to discriminate against you at the hospital when you're trying to see your loved one, but you're not married, so you don't get to go in the room. His family who threw him out 20 years ago, they get to go in the room. It was meant to, if you wanted to apply for the police department, and there's a question on that application that says, Larry, are you now or have you ever committed a crime? Or are you currently in the act of committing a crime and you're a homosexual man participating in homosexual sex acts, you have to either lie or answer yes. And if you answer yes, you don't get the job. So now it's employment discrimination, you see? So that puts into context why I didn't believe what he was telling me. The problem with finding 2106 case is we had had them before, but they were what I would call dirty cases, right? Yeah. Were they called like um, or, an aggra aggravating? There was, yeah, there was, there was um, some sort of sort of uh, yeah. aggravating circumstances that made it not only about what we needed it to be about. It so, was happening in a public park. Ex exactly. Exactly. Well, let's not get judgmental about that. <laughs> let's. <laughs> um, or in most cases, even if the case was clean, the guys didn't want to become public. So they would pay their penalty, pay their fine. And just, it was gone. So I told Mark, I said, just, you know, have Nathan send it to me. 
So I didn't give it that much thought over the weekend. I remember kind of making a joke to some of my clients, to my clients, patrons at the bar. Uh oh, uh oh, oh, we just over. <laughs> wait a second, wait a second. Talking uh -oh. about dirty cases, is the whole thing blown? <laughs> So I, I'm talking to people at the bar, you know, just kind of shooting my mouth off, you know, hey, I hear, you know, this, that, and the other thing. And we kind of have a laugh about it. And I don't think about it much. And then Monday morning, I don't know, six, seven, eight o'clock, and my fax machine goes off. Now, a fax machine, boys and girls, is, <laughs> is like email with a phone number. And real paper. And real paper. And not only that, but the paper back then was still that heat sensitized paper, you know, that was kind of shiny. Oh, yeah, oh. yeah, yeah, yeah. This is the old stuff. So I shoot up and wake up in bed and I'm like, are they really faxing me this police report? So I go into my little office and sure enough, there it is, plain as day. And under criminal offense, it says homosexual conduct. I still have the original plea. I still have that fax. It's very faded. You can't really see it, but I still have it. Fortunately, I made a have a copy of it. I've still got my original notes from that afternoon. So my fear was that these guys were going to just pay their fine and this the whole thing was going to be over. So I tried to call Tyrone. The number did not work. I called John Lawrence and left a voicemail. And just said, you know, I, I don't really remember exactly what I said on the voicemail, but whatever I said, he returned my call. It was probably something like, John, my name is Lane Lewis. I'm, I'm a gay activist here in Houston. I've heard about your case. Please don't do anything until you talk to me or something. Here's my phone number. Call me back. He called me back, told him the same thing again. And he was so angry. He was so pissed off that this had happened to him. He was mad. He was embarrassed. He had been drugged out of his home at early hours of the morning in his underwear, handcuffed. He was humiliated. His neighbors saw this go on. And I said, well, John, I said, I think this could be a Supreme Court case. At that time, John says to me, we weren't even having sex, to which I said, John, don't ever say that to anybody again. It doesn't matter. Never repeat that because it doesn't matter what you were or were not doing. So he said, how am I going to pay for all this? John, trust me, you will not have to pay a dime. We will raise the money. I will find the money. Trust me, money is the least of the least problem in all of this. I said, I need to talk to Tyrone. I said, because I'm not going to move forward if neither one of you together want to move forward. Because John, at some point when this breaks, you are going to become very well known in the media. Mm -hmm. And he said, I do not want my job in jeopardy. I said, John, I, I can't make any promises on that. I'm just being real and honest with you. I think this is a Supreme Court case. I think that we could open the door for marriage equality and occupational equality and all these other things. It's going to be amazing, but I can't protect you in that regard. The other thing you need to prepare for is that once the case gets going, you will become inconsequential. That at some point, this is going to be about words on paper and will have nothing to do with you. And you need to be prepared for that, too, because you're going to go from the center of attention, which you're going to hate, to no attention at all, which you may also hate. He said, well, I'm in. I think he tracked Tyrone down 
and had Tyrone call me, if my memory is correct. Tyrone called me. Tyrone was a go along to get along guy. Tyrone said, sure, you know, just whatever John wants, it's fine. So I then set out to try to find an attorney. So I called a few people. I called Denise Parker, who keep, keep in mind, had just been elected to city council six months earlier. I called Ray Hill, who we've talked about, big mentor of mine. So I then set out to try to find an attorney. I called Ray Hill, Anise Parker, and Grant Martin, political strategist out of San Francisco, to talk about what next steps were and that I wanted to reach out to Mitchell Katine. Why did I want to call Mitchell? Several reasons. One, Mitchell had done a lot of pro bono work during the 80s and 90s for people with HIV that needed their wills redone, right? Their living wills, their estate probated, that kind of stuff. When I was starting the youth center in the early 90s, Mitchell was the one that pro bono did my 501c3 paperwork and application to help set us up as a nonprofit corporation. Mitchell was a real estate attorney. He was not a criminal attorney, but he worked for Williams, Bernberg, and Anderson. And Williams, Bernberg, and Anderson had some pretty deep pockets. And they had a criminal division, albeit a small one. And Jerry Bernberg of Williams, Bernberg, and Anderson was a known liberal progressive attorney within the Democratic Party. And they had had Supreme Court cases before. Mitchell had the same reaction that I had to Mark. Okay, whatever. Sure. You know, fax it to me. So I faxed it to him. And within seconds, minutes, my phone rang and Mitchell's like, do you have any idea what you have in your hand? Do you know what this is? And I was like, I have pretty good idea what I think this is. So Mitchell, like I, immediately saw what we had in our hands. He said, I I've got to go talk to the partners, but I want to do this. So he talked to the partners and the partners gave him the green light to move ahead. He calls me back. When can we meet the boys? When can we meet these guys? I said, well, I'll call them and tell them that I've set up in a, a meeting, see if they still want to move forward. They did. So on the day I drove out to Channel View, I picked all three up, John, Tyrone, and Eubanks, Lois Eubanks, and drove them out to Southwest Houston to where, to where Mitchell officed at Williams, Bernberg, and Anderson. Eubanks very much wanted to be a part of this narrative because he felt, at least he voiced to me, had I not made this police call, you know, <laughs> I had not done this illegal thing. My God. Um, then none of this would happen. So I need to be a part of this narrative or I'm going to tell people they were not having sex. He made that threat to me on numerous occasions. He made the threat to John on numerous occasions. And then, of course, if he told people they weren't having sex, the charges would probably just be dropped. That's the fear. So... We meet in the lawyer's office and it's a large conference table and Royce is sitting at the head of the table. John and Tyrone, this guy. Or, yeah, John and Tyrone are sitting next to him and I'm sitting across from the two boys. So I've got Royce on my right. I've got Tyrone in front of me and I've got John just to his right. Mitchell comes into the room, a guy named David Jones, who was like the criminal attorney at Williams Bernberg Anderson. I remember Jerry Bernberg came in for a while and they were talking about next steps. Now, what, what should happen? What could happen? What would happen from a legal perspective? 
after all that was over, I asked for the room. I said, can I have the, the room with the, the boys for a few minutes? So all the lawyers left and um, I gave them what I would describe as ask not what you can, your you know, country can do for you, but what you can do for your country speech. Mm-hmm. I talked a lot about Harvey Milk and that bit of history. I talked about the Medicine Society. I talked about a lot of queer history to try to put it in perspective for them where their place may be if this plays out the way we think it's going to be. I again said, guys, if you want to stop, we will get up. We will walk out. We will get in my car and I'll take you home. And you never have to hear from me again. And they didn't. That's what's so remarkable about these men. They could have said no and gone back to their lives and they didn't have to be harassed at work. And they didn't. They said, we will go forward. Amazing. These were just guys that were doing an amazing thing that they didn't have to do. So I called uh, Mitchell and them back in the room. I said, the guys want to move forward. At that point, the legal aspect took on a life of its own. My job became more managing the, <laughs> the personalities of the three guys, right? Because keep in mind, you know, they were still out and they were partying, they were doing their thing, they were living their lives. So I would kind of find out where they like to hang out and make connections at those places. You know, hey, one of the things they would do is they would go out to the bars or the clubs. John liked to hang out at a place called the Brazos River Bottom, which was a country western queer club. If you go back and watch uh, that 60 Minutes episode with Ed Bradley, it starts with a scene from Brazos Riverbottom, the BRB. They would hang out there a lot, at least John would. And then instead of driving home, they would often get a hotel room at like some no-name kind of hotel, motel, you know, one of those type of places that every episode of Law and Order starts with. And, <laughs> and I would track down the manager of these places and be like, hey, these three guys hang out at your establishment on the weekends at times. If you ever have any problems, please don't call the police. Please call me. I will come deal with it. Here's $20. And, you know, here's my cell phone number. And so sometimes Mitchell might get a call and he would call me. Sometimes I would get a call from one of the three boys that they're in a fight somewhere or something's going on and they need help. And sometimes it would be, you know, from the, the manager at three o'clock in the morning. And I had to go to Jay Allen and be like, hey, I need to leave the club for about an hour. I've got to go pick these guys up and separate them before they get arrested again for drunken disorderly. And they're on the front page. And to Jay Allen's credit, never refused me. Never refused me. And then this is insane that they're bad guys. They, they weren't. Even Eubanks, I mean, he was a kind heart. I mean, these were guys who were struggling with alcoholism and drug dependency and internalized homophobia and being in the closet and being rejected by their family and all the bullshit that's put on queer people because we're illegal citizens. And then they find each other and find ways to hurt themselves and hurt each other because why? That's what you fucking deserve. So Mitchell takes over the case, you know, I'm trying to manage personalities and try to keep them out of the press 
were also, of course, trying to keep it secret that they were not even having sex at the time. We get out to the very first meeting and uh, with the Judge Parrott's office. Now, Judge Parrott um, was a Democrat out in Channel View. Now, Channel View is a pretty conservative area. <laughs> uh, Channel View is out in the sticks at that time. It's pretty built up now. But at that time, there's still pasture out there. We go in, and I don't remember exactly how it paid off, but I, I think he did like a $100 fine and something like a, a, a court cost of like $41 for each defendant or something. I don't remember. But somebody, Mitchell or somebody on the defense team or the prosecution team, realized that that penalty was not enough to appeal. Like if it's if the penalty is below a certain amount, there is no appeal. Mm-hmm. So the defense team had to pull Judge Parrott into his chambers. And Judge Parrott was a good guy, a funny guy, super sweet. I'm still in contact with him to this day. I want to set a stage for Judge Parrott's chambers. Judge Parrott had this a big, huge private office behind his desk. And the walls were completely lined with shelving. And on those shelvings, he had every kind of collectible toy you could imagine. It looked like mm. a Schwartz in that office. And so it's- I would always... know nothing about this. It, I was, it, this looks like Larry's house. Okay. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, that's what literally what Larry's is. house is. Yeah. Okay. I've been Only asked... discrete corners of it. <laughs> no, no, this was wall to wall. I asked Parrot if he had pictures of his old office. He says he does, but he didn't know where they are. I said, well, if you ever find them, I want a picture because people wouldn't believe. And it wasn't just like, I mean, it was like stacked four deep on each shelf. Pretty remarkable. Anywho. So he's so going to, by by increasing this, he is going to look like the villain now, right? To no, a lot of not people. at all. Um, nobody knew. Nobody. Okay. Keep in mind, this was this had not hit the papers yet. And so I think he increased it to like $125 or something like that. So they pay it and we leave. Now, Mitchell said there was a bunch of camera crews and stuff there. I don't remember there being cameras. And we have a picture of us that, thank God, somebody thought to take of those of us in attendance. Me, John, Tyrone, Mitchell, Suzanne Goldberg from Lambda Legal, who was in town from New York and David and myself, and took a picture of us in the parking lot. And then from there, it just kind of took on a life of its own. So really what Lane has and what he has convinced these attorneys to take on and these defendants to take on is a clean case. It's the only charge, and it happened to be in private to challenge this discriminatory law. But we have some legally problematic things about it, namely that if they tell the truth, they'll get acquitted and the whole thing is dead, which... By the way, it's interesting to me that a webmaster can sue on the off chance that a gay couple might ask her to make a wedding website and have standing to do so and take that all the way to the Supreme Court and win. But gay people could not do the same here or ever. See, so. this is this place where where podcasts actually lose a little bit of the nuance because you cannot see my epic eye rolls and head shakes at this stuff. I I would like to believe they were powerful enough that <laughs> listeners could. They felt it. They felt it. They 
they felt they, themselves having to roll their eyes at this because I was rolling my eyes. Yeah, no, this is exactly right, right? And honestly, if if I may put my tinfoil hat on for a moment, <laughs> I kind of wonder if Quinn and the others knew when they went in that there was no gunman. Because remember, also in our interview with Lane Lewis, I brought up that it was lucky that no one was shot or killed or shot at anyway, because we previously established that they were terrible shots. <laughs> and he went into some detail about the arrest itself that, if accurate, I found a little odd. Royce Eubanks, that was the guy that made the 911 call. He was Tyrone's boyfriend to some degree. That's even darker because he said there's a an armed black man. That could have gone very, very poorly. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, Not that it I, went great for him, but... Yeah, I've never even works. thought about it from that perspective, but you're right. They could have come in guns blazing. That's a really good question, actually. Why did they saunder into that apartment? Because as the story goes, the officers entered and Eubanks followed. So Eubanks is behind the officers. You know, I never Why thought would he be allowed how casual if... that was. I never thought about it. You would have thought they would have taken Eubanks. He would park, oh, yeah. parked him in the parking lot right? And said, you wait here. What apartment number? We're going to go up the stairs, enter the property and secure the premises. And mm -hmm. he just walked in with them. Huh? Okay. That, that doesn't, yeah, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me, but no. none of it, none of it makes any sense to me because again, you have this, this sheriff's department that has proves itself quantitatively and qualitatively that it is trigger happy. You have these this group of officers who are openly racist, who are openly homophobic, who are openly part of the KKK. And Robert Eubanks knows exactly how to get a response out of that department by saying, there's an angry black man waving a gun in my friend's apartment. You know, that's not, that's not by accident. Like he obviously did that with intent. Yeah, I mean, it's weird. Why would they bring this other guy up with them? Why wouldn't they be like, you wait here? Unless they knew that he had filed a false report and they wanted to hold him in custody. You're either going to leave an officer with them outside the building, or you're going to call for more backup so that you can have a full squad mm -hmm. going in. I don't understand. Mm -hmm. I just don't understand. I don't understand all of it, and I also don't understand why... I guess if I was in law enforcement, I'd go, if you went in for a gun and came out with homosexual acts, what happened in the in-between? And so, okay, wild speculation Yay. time. Haven't had that in a while. You know what would make this all make sense to me? Quinn's a homosexual. Is if you, that <laughs> as well, if Eubanks had told them there was no gunman when they all arrived, if he freaked out and he explained that his mm. boyfriend was up there having sex with someone which is what he feared and suspected at the time. Mm. Then they might have gone in just to teach these guys a lesson. And once they were in, kind of had to arrest them for something. Yeah, because they admit there's literally nothing else going on except for homosexual acts. So that that could be a possibility. And, and what also makes me think that that could be it is that in the previous episode, we talked about how Joseph Quinn called I believe what the assistant district attorney to ask, is it even possible for us to charge them if they were in their own home? Yeah. Honestly, now I want to look at timestamps on stuff. Now I'm getting a little paranoid. 
But if I were working on this story as a reporter, I would have looked at the time they called versus the time they entered the apartment. Yeah. To see if they called before. But probably not. They probably did call afterwards, you know, and it doesn't prove it as a negative. But if they had. Yeah. okay, I'm going to stop talking about that now. Whatever happened that night, it was now in the hands of the defendants who luckily are willing to let their personal lives be dragged across every newspaper and television screen in America and much of the world. And a group of kick-ass attorneys who are determined to take down this discriminatory law. Excellent. And it's in the news, and people are trying to convince Lawrence and Garner to drop the case. Because again, it's not really in their best interest when they could pay like a $200 fine and be spared all of this. Lawrence's brother called him and said he'd pay the fine for him. And Lawrence, according to Dale Carpenter, said, quote, Well, it's too late. I'm sorry. This is going to go where it's going to go because I'm not going to tolerate it. Good for him. Mm. Garner also told the same author to get an outdated law like that off the book. This is worth it to a lot of people. Yeah, absolutely. So really, this is where they become and remain heroes of this Absolutely story. selfless. I, I mean, truly, I think there's a lot of people that of our listening demographic who, who cannot imagine how much mud they were drugged through at that time. For five years. Yeah. And they are forever linked now, right? Which is kind of weird because they barely knew each other. And that's going to be the case for as long as American legal history is studied. Is it these... That's is these weird, two had right? sex, yeah. and that's what led to the legalization mm. of same-sex intercourse, which laid the mm. groundwork for then same-sex relationships. Okay, back to story time. Do it. Lane walked us through what happened at the Justice of the Peace. But in Texas, a case that went before a Justice of the Peace has to be tried in a proper criminal court all over again before you can appeal. So, it was assigned to the court of... Hannah Chow, a Democrat who had just lost re-election. She was nervous about her successor, whose name, I swear to God, was Janice Law. <laughs> you got to go in front of the law. <laughs> <laughs> and honestly, I okay, this lady, this lady. First of all, I think she really wants to be a Judge Judy. I've checked out her website. I've checked out her books. And Hannah Chow was right to be suspicious of this lady. She even wrote a book about this case based on a theory that seemed to originate with Joseph Quinn. And it's basically arguing that the cops were set up because this case was too perfect for activists. It was. Oh, my God. I I love this suggestion because that suggests that either one, any cop in Houston would actually have arrested these people Two, they got incredibly lucky on their first try, right? Or three, somehow completely undetected in all of the interviews about this case and all of the, the articles and the, the books and all of these things, no one has ever encountered a rash of like calls to the sheriff's department that were like, there's a bomb in the old well. And then they get there and it's just two guys fucking. <laughs> or like, someone's holding up the back. And they get there and there's just two guys fucking. Like, I mean, it's like, like driving 90 down the road and you get pulled over. Quick, suck my dick. <laughs> there's just two guys fucking. It's, it's, um, 
Yeah, it's... <laughs> oh, God. It's a pretty wild theory, right? Oh, well, and it's yeah. so funny because... Or, you know, maybe they just got super they lucky. Got, they got lucky that they just happened to get the Keystone Cops led by Joseph Quinn. <laughs> <laughs> To be the ones to bust in, like, oh god. <sighs> I mean, and also like, as we went into a lot in our last episode, these defendants were not ideal. No, they weren't. They weren't. They weren't a couple. They had criminal histories. They were not particularly stable personally. They're just not the, the people you would try this sort no, of thing No, again, with. when we talk about, I mean, um, as much as, as Lane Lewis called this a clean case, he called it a clean case because it was an obvious violation of somebody's right to privacy. It, he didn't call it a clean case because they arrested, you know, like fucking Neil Patrick Harris and David Burtka. Like, they did not arrest. <laughs> the, they did not arrest exemplary gays in this situation. <laughs> So her her website, which, to be fair, appears outdated, says that she is a visiting judge in Texas, but she is not on the 2023 Texas Judicial Directory. Her website is also batshit. Like, is, it, is it in, like, Comic Sans? I, parts might be. I was actually reading it. I got to this line about how she and her husband won a Telly Award in 2006, and it's like, a Telly Award is roughly equivalent to an Oscar. And I was like, girl, no, right? And I swear to God, about an hour later, a creative director at a production company I work with, who's a pretty kick-ass queer himself, this dude named Michael, tells me that I'm currently in the running for a telly. Oh my God, Larry. <laughs> I didn't know you were going to be an Oscar winning. <laughs> an o- I had no idea. Wow. It's such an honor. Maybe you can get Judge Law to present it to you. Anyway, Judge Chow was as we now know rightly, concerned about the quality of her successor. So she asked one of her colleagues, a Republican actually, named Sherman Ross, to take the case over. And Ross is kind of interesting. He had a few brushes with the media in kind of quirky ways about eight or nine years after this. And nothing was especially good or bad about things he did. He just wound up like holding a hearing in an ambulance for someone who was about to get extradited. And he filmed a a little for a reality show or something like that. Did he open up Al Capone's vault? No, no, no. Judge Judge Ross is a real judge who doesn't have time for that stuff. But he's he's a moderate Republican who she knows will handle this properly, unlike this kind of loopy Janice Law lady. So to to help the people who have no idea what's going on in the early 2000s, it's sort of like what's happening right now with Judge Eileen Cannon in Florida. Where they go, damn, she's way too extreme. Let's try to find somebody who is maybe not batshit crazy. Mm. Continue. So, the chief prosecutor in Judge Ross's court was a closeted lesbian assistant director named... Love it. Are you ready for this? Oh, I can't wait. It's better than Janice Law. Angela Beavers. (laughs) 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 Oh... And of course, these poor, poor Miss Beavers. <laughs> poor Miss. No, you know what? Fuck Beavers. Oh, I'm, I do. <laughs> I'm going to go into reasons later. <laughs> At this part of the story, she's actually pretty cool, though. Um, okay, so we bypassed Judge Law because she was too batshit, and now we have Prosecutor Beavers, the closeted lesbian. Excellent. Yes, in Judge Ross's courtroom. 
In Judge Ross's courtroom. Okay. A thing to keep in mind is you have these two guys on a Class C misdemeanor, and they're coming in right. with, like, really high-powered attorneys from an, a national organization. So people are pretty clued into what's going on, right? Yeah. Including Beavers, who does not care for sodomy laws one little bit. Good for her. We're going to give her credit there. And while the defense attorneys say that she didn't do anything improper or anything that it wasn't her duty as a, a public employee to do, she did sort of like guide the defense on some things and helped them make sure that it, it went smoothly to get it to the next court. Keep in mind that courts at this level cannot say, this statute is actually unconstitutional because we say so. That has to happen at either the state Supreme Court, if it's the state constitution, or the U.S. Supreme Court, if it's the U.S. Constitution. But that's the argument that Lambda Legal is laying out already. And Lambda Legal has a strong legal team for this. They've got first and foremost Suzanne Goldberg. If you haven't heard of Suzanne Goldberg, she is now the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Strategic Operations and Outreach at the Office for Civil Rights in the Department of Education. She's a big deal. She is a Biden appointee. That's that's huge. They also have David Jones, a criminal defense attorney who had already been assistant attorney general for the state of Texas and would go on to have a long running show on uh, Channel 8 PBS. And uh, Mitch not to be confused with Davy Jones of the of the monkeys or of the locker. There you go. And Mitchell Katine, the local counsel, who, in addition to his regular workload, would do pro bono work for those facing HIV discrimination. So, again, all of these people walking into courtroom for a Class C misdemeanor is a pretty strong indicator that something's up. They go into court with a briefing saying that the law is unconstitutional because it denies gay people legal equal protection under the law and because it violates the right to privacy that at the time was considered settled law due to Roe v. Wade. So now... Mm. <laughs> don't No, don't look at it in the eye. Stay tuned, folks. It's going to get even more fun. <laughs> Back to the case. Both the judge and the prosecutor have later said that they suspected the cops were lying, and either one could and would probably have dropped it in that case. But because of this no-contest plea... And the way the defendants are trying to speed this through the courts, the judge never has to review their testimony. So they read the charges, they enter their no contest pleas, and Beavers has to read the quote unquote facts as provided by the police into the court record. Oh, God, I would pay so much money. The aggressive alpha male one minute of eye contact pumping is really really riveting which by the way if no one has ever made this as a porn please do and give me like a little writing credit but give most to joseph quinn so at one point poor angie beavers slips <laughs> and says that they were having oral sex and suzanne oh, goldberg no. who again is now deputy assistant secretary for strategic operations and outreach at the u.s so office beautiful. for civil rights has to interrupt and be like, um, excuse me, it, it was anal. This is awful. <laughs> um, so the judge finds them guilty, Judge Ross, and according to Dale Carpenter, he actually winked at David Jones as if to be like, I see what you're up to. You know, it's funny because in the same way, wild speculation again, but part of me really does wildly speculate that a lot of people within law knew what was up 
and that they were kind of doing the like wink nudge mm. because and again like I, I think that if there had been any kind of pressure put on this case it could have been thrown out at any step but I really do think this was one of those things where they're like yeah you know this law is kind of bullshit we we have an example of it that absolutely shows how ridiculous it is at this age and you know at this time and and this stage in our country and let's do it like let's let's finally get rid of this law if we can so okay i think there's some of that going on certainly with angela beavers but honestly one of the problems here is that the primary source for all of this is dale carpenter's book and it's generally quite good and it certainly broke the whole story open but he definitely introduces a conservative political bias in a very odd and conspicuous way. He sort of presents this narrative in which no Republican in the world actually has a problem with homosexuality, except they have to pretend they do because every other Republican in the world does, which it, it doesn't make any sense. Even today, only 41% of Republicans think same-sex relations are morally acceptable. Now, that's down from a high of 56% a year ago and after a uh, a really sustained year-long effort to tie LGBT people to like pedophilia because they read in libraries and weird, weird shit. So part of me is also sort of like, yeah, sure, Dale Carpenter, every Republican in this book 25 years ago thought that you're just like them. It doesn't feel true to me as a theme. But I also think like, do we think Sherman Ross hated gays? No, I don't think that at all. You know, I think a lot of people who maybe, let's just say, don't even necessarily feel one way or the other about, let's say, gay people, like specifically, right? That there is this assumption then that the hardships that happen can't be intentional by another party, right? To, yeah. to assume that intent is, it's like mind boggling for them because then that cracks open this whole thing about, I mean, it really does sort of unravel everything of like, wow, that's, if, if that's true, what if I'm complicit in that? And what if the way that I'm acting or the fact that I, I have apathy, right? I don't necessarily openly hate, but I'm also not a champion or an advocate. What if my apathy is actually something that is also sort of furthering this? So then it's easier to just say, oh, well, you know, it's not intentional or there's nothing personal about it. So I, I think that even with something like this where it shows that gay people are having their constitutional rights violated there still seems to be this benefit of the doubt that that was just an unconscious mistake on part of society mm. as opposed to no there's an actual active marginalization and dehumanization that happens to minority populations harpenter again he has this and i mean i think it's pretty clear from listening to this that i have a liberal political bias gasp <laughs> that said i think that carpenter is slipping it in ways that maybe he's not even that aware of two quick asides one when you spoke in the last episode about the incredible socioeconomic diversity among queer people i kind of thought about suzanne goldberg and her colleagues having brunch with the defendants in this case which is a thing that happened at one point and it's just kind of an interesting mental image for me yeah. Again, I think there's just so much to unpack with 
just the entire intersectionality of identities that were happening across the board for this from start to finish, right? You have issues of race. That's what started this whole thing was Robert Eubanks using his partner's race as a way to get the police there. Officer Lilly, in his statements, kind of made it a point to, and Lilly himself is black, by the way, but he kind of made it a point to stress the different races of the two men in a way that kind of felt like that was a factor he was uncomfortable with as well. So miscegenation laws or anti-miscegenation laws, those are still in the books too, right? When we talk about trigger laws, there are still anti-miscegenation laws that are on the books, even though Loving versus Virginia was already 30 plus years in the books, as we've talked about in the first episode and we've talked about throughout is culture does not necessarily change with legislation. So just because you have laws that protect interracial marriages doesn't mean that people are going to be okay with it. Historically, we see there being this layer of both homophobia and then on top of that, racism. So if you have a problem with interracial marriage or interracial relationships, and then you walk in on a homosexual interracial relationship, Hmm. that's a lot to have triggered for, for an area which is relatively intolerant of any kind of difference. Yeah. Yeah. Another aside, Ms. Beavers, Angela Beavers, Angie, I like to call her. Angie B. I want to say that she's awesome, but I don't know. And the reason I don't know is she is still an assistant district attorney with Harris County. And you know this problem with civil forfeiture where cops or the DA are like, nice car or house or bank account you got there. Uh, Be a shame if someone committed a crime with it. And then they just like take it even though you haven't been convicted of any crime. And then they get to keep it legally somehow. That's the division she leads. And so she drives some. So what you're telling me is she drives somebody else's Mercedes. <laughs> Probably. No, no, no. We are not. Uh, <laughs> that we are not saying. But we are saying that Harris County's civil forfeiture practices are so horrific that earlier this week, she came up in a Fox News piece about a class action suit that called them one of the quote most abusive civil asset forfeiture programs in the nation. This is Fox News being like, you guys are fascists. Good, good, good job, Angie B. So, I mean, unless she... Way to represent. Right? I mean, unless she's trying real hard to change that or she just really doesn't want the assignment or something like, kind of fuck her very much. Love your record on gays, not so much on other things. Complicated. Complicated, Complicated individual. People. That Angie Beavers... And speaking of complicated individuals, Lawrence and Garner have now been convicted. They're they are now criminals, and they intend sex to sex crimes. Sex crimers. <laughs> sex crimers <laughs> would be a great name for an action adventure show. By the way, I don't know. That's, that sounds like a bad punk band. Sex crimers. That sounds like the best punk band. <laughs> so they go up to the 14th court of appeal they ask for their two cases to be combined into a single appeal and in march of 1999 it officially becomes lawrence v texas and the argument is that the law was unconstitutional because it's discriminatory and people have a right to privacy and the state has no legitimate interest in preventing private sex between consenting adults and basically 
they're saying you can't just use the word morality as a sort of abstract to justify whatever laws you want. <laughs> well, that's stuck. <laughs> so the head of the appellate division of the Harris County's DA office, Bill Delmore, researches all the possible justifications for the law, and he realizes that the only possible one they can offer is actually just saying morality, which, mm -hmm. to Delmore's credit, it's the most honest argument they could have made. They could have called in Paul Cameron to say a bunch of crazy bullshit about how evil gay people are or used AIDS as a public health justification the way a lot of people at that time did. But basically he's saying, and he's kind of saying this to the media, like, hey, this is the law. If you don't like it, change it through the legislature, which, to be fair, is something that Texas should be doing right now since it's still on the books. So the DA's office is on the wrong side, but they're also not about to go full raging homophobe on it. Well, so, again, I feel like this is one of those places where, as Lane Lewis called it, the clean case, where they're like, there's just no good way for us to argue this. And it points out the whole of like when people take it this far, it's a nonsensical law because most people just pay, pay the fine, right? So it is this minor punishment to remind you that you are a second-class citizen. And when, when you have somebody actually challenge it, it, it shows just how flimsy the law actually is. Mm, yeah, so in November of 1999, oral arguments are made before a three-judge panel of the Court of Appeals. All three of the judges are Republicans. And in these, Delmore is surprisingly candid. He admits that the case could not survive heightened judicial scrutiny, meaning that if it's about discrimination, it's toast. And he said that he couldn't even imagine a compelling state interest in passing the law. So that's surprisingly honest and decent of the guy, even if his argument that the law should stand because the legislature should fix it, not a court, is bad. So one of the judges is assigned to write an opinion to be circulated. And he decides to vote to strike down the law as a form of sex discrimination. Because hey. if it's legal right. for a woman to have sex with a man, it should be legal for a man to do the same thing. That's sort of the standard that Delmore had said it couldn't survive. Then the other two judges read it. And one of the other judges decided to join him in his opinion because he thinks that it's not right that the law targets gay people as a group. Right. So, on June 8th of 2000, the law is struck down by the 14th Court of Appeals. So at this point, they've won. But that means that the law cannot be enforced in counties under the 14th's jurisdiction. It's unconstitutional, but only there. And the defendants can't appeal. So uh, what, what do you think Republicans did there, Rachel, with that? They're like, cool, we're just going to take the win, and we're just not gonna try anything that would maybe blow this up into a national issue yeah like they like they always do because they are the party of common sense law and order <laughs> no no they they shot themselves in the face which you know good thing they broke that habit thoughts and prayers um, the texas republican party's convention happened just a few days after this and they drafted a virulently homophobic platform that said that gay sex quote tears at the fabric of society, contributes to the breakdown of the family unit, and leads to the spread of dangerous communicable diseases. You want to react? 
No, I don't want to react to that bullshit. Oh, okay. <laughs> it also publicly rebuked the judges by name and announced opposition to their re-election. The Harris County GOP also circulated a letter targeting, one might say canceling, these judges. So okay. they're they're trying to paint a big target on their backs to flood their primaries with outside money and accuse them of murdering all the families with butt sex or whatever. But the thing is, these two judges happened to be safe because one was retiring and the other's primary had already passed. Morons. But there were nine judges on the full court of appeals. And the DA's office is also feeling the same heat. So the DA's office files a right. new brief making the additional argument that gay people can't have kids, so why should they have sex? And basically... Which, again, mm, open up that open up that can yeah, of worms. I wonder if it's anyone has a response to that later. Oh. There'll be a Ginsburn or two, is all we're saying. A Ginsburn. <laughs> God, I miss that woman. They are basically inviting the full Court of Appeals to reconsider the case on Bonk, which... I can't say in good conscience that they actually did because they didn't even hear oral arguments. They just issued a new ruling in March of 2001, and all of the other judges said that the law was constitutional, even though some had really expressed skepticism heading in. What this teaches me is don't skip oral kids. <laughs> so in order to sort of stomp their feet at this ruling they didn't like and to drum up anti-gay animus to to rile their voters up they set themselves up to lose the case statewide and or nationally meanwhile while all of this is going on the defendants lives are moving along as well eubanks and lawrence reportedly never saw each other after that one weird meeting that lane lewis talked about and garner and lawrence really only saw each other for legal proceedings and meetings but Eubanks and Garner continued to remain a couple, even though their relationship became even more toxic. Messy gaze. Eubanks sought a protection order, alleging that in one incident, Garner had stabbed him in the finger with a box cutter, burned him with a hot iron, and then sexually assaulted him. Jesus. Garner was convicted of assault in another incident in 2000. And finally, in October of 2000, Robert Eubanks was really horrifically beaten by someone or some group of people. Judging by his scrapes and other injuries, he seems to have crawled to the apartment that he and Garner were living in, bloodied and not fully conscious, having suffered massive head trauma from some blunt instrument. Jesus Christ. Garner called 911 and Eubanks was taken to the hospital where he lay comatose. Eubanks' family forbid Garner from seeing him or from coming to his funeral when he died three days later. Oh, my God. They probably suspected him of killing him, given their history. Right. However, Eubanks' injuries were consistent with his having crawled to the apartment, and a grand jury declined to indict Garner based on the evidence. Garner's theory was that he had gotten into an altercation at a nearby bus stop. So, Robert Eubanks, I mean, that's a troubling and tragic end to a troubled, sad life. And, and this is why I said in our previous episode that even though Eubanks does do many reprehensible things in this story, 
he still deserves a better end than he got and a better life. Yeah. Yeah. Because if he'd received proper mental health care, he might not have lived the awful life that he did or died the way that he did. I feel like it's getting better now, but back then, being gay was your psychosis to a lot of people. So whatever was wrong with you got attributed to your gayness. That's a really good point. Right. And so rather than looking at this and going, this person needs mental health help, it gets attributed to, well, if he wasn't gay. Mm -hmm. And that is, and again, if if he felt like, if if it felt like he could be accepted for his, his homosexuality and then have his mental health addressed Mm. i wonder what trajectory his life could have taken that's a really really good and sad point so after their win at the 14th was reversed by the 14th the defendants were able to appeal to the highest court in the state which is the court of criminal appeals and the court sat on it for over a year and just did nothing People were just waiting and waiting. It didn't request briefs. It didn't It didn't set a day for oral arguments or anything like that. It just declined to hear it after over a year. Jeez. Wasted everyone's time, of course. But it also means that it was done with the state of Texas. The next stop was the Supreme Court. Right. If it would hear it, right? Because the, the Supreme Court doesn't hear many <clears throat> cases, and it had just decided this issue 16 years before. So a lot of people at this time were like, hey, don't try to do this right now. They're not likely to overturn themselves so soon. Right. O'Connor, who had voted in favor of anti-sodomy laws in the previous case, was considered one of the court's swing votes. And uh, just as an aside, do you do you miss swing votes? I, I kind of feel like having them made the Supreme Court uh, was, more legitimate. <laughs> well, it, was, it was and it was I mean, I hate to put it this way. It was also exciting. Yeah. Like and not that these th- should be exciting, but there mm-hmm. was this excitement of like, where are you going to go? Mm-hmm. You know, like, how is this? How is this going to fall? Especially when we had a true sort of four four one where you didn't know where you're going to have that one vote go and so you you were really like is this gonna stay is this gonna go they kind of come across like partisan hacks right now because they are the court has lost a lot of legitimacy in the eyes of americans the supreme court's approval has fallen 21 points on the gallup tracker since this case happened the judicial philosophy should not overlap 100% with a partisan one. Or it looks a lot like partisanship, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it does not look like an independent branch of the government anymore. So the defendants petitioned the court in July of 2001, arguing that the law violates the 14th Amendment on grounds of equal protection and due process. And in December, the court agrees to hear it. Our next very special episode of Kick-Ass Queers will go into real detail about the arguments from the prosecution and defense, including an interview with Paul Smith, who made the oral argument before the Supreme Court. In the meantime, we would love it if you could like, rate, and or review us on your favorite podcast platform. If you enjoyed this episode, please remember to share this with your friends, family, close co-workers, and your homophobic uncle. You can find this episode and all our back episodes on all major podcast platforms or on our website, kickassqueers.com. You can also find and follow us on Instagram and Facebook at kickassqueercast.
Until next time, whether your adventure takes three episodes, four episodes, or a million episodes, continue to kick ass. You can also find and follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Or if you're real ambitious, real life. <laughs> no, please don't. <laughs>